You've been listening to amazing music here at the Nahum Siegel Network. Coming up next, JM Sunday with Matis Weingast here at NahumSiegel.com. Oh,
morning, everyone. Welcome to JM Sunday right here on the Nachum Siegel Network. I'm your host, Mata Swangast. Today is the 23rd day in the month of July, fifth day in the month of Av. And uh, if you're studying Dafyomi, it's uh, Gitten Samach Ches, 68. Temperature today, right now, outside of our studios, it's 68 degrees. A mild uh, temperature for this time of year. It's going up, though, to a high of 89 degrees, but back down to 66 overnight. You can open the windows and get some fresh air in the house if you're uh, not doing so already and have your ACs on. In Jerusalem, it's 95 degrees, going down to a low of 74. We're in our nine days format, so we're going to be playing selections from lectures of Barbara Barrel Wine. That'll come up in just a moment. Uh, the... Uh, Let's see, morning chizuk will be at 7.30, and no news from Israel this week. Hannah Julian is off. And we'll be continuing here until 9 o'clock this morning, Eastern Time, a little under two hours from now. Glad you could join us. I hope you had a wonderful Shabbos and a wonderful week that passed. Tisha B'Av, of course, coming up a Wednesday night and a Thursday. So please check the exact times of the fast where you are. Um, and what time the fast begins, and, of course, what time the fast is over. Uh, other than that, that's our programming for today. So uh, here now is Rabbi Barrel Wine discussing the three weeks. The three weeks between the 17th of Tammuz and the ninth day of Av are the saddest days of the Jewish calendar and they were established by our rabbis to commemorate the destruction of the first and later of the second temple and of the ensuing exile and dispersion of the Jewish people throughout the world they are days of national mourning commemorating a national tragedy However, they have deep personal significance as well. In one way, the limiting of the period of mourning to three weeks is a necessity in Jewish life. Would we mourn every terrible tragedy that has befallen us in our long and bloody history? There would not be enough days in the calendar year for all of the observances. The Novi Yirmiya in Eicha already points out to that fact in his prophetic view. Who can give wood that I had the ability to weep but I'm all dried up already. There are no more tears. What shall the Jewish people say after 2,500 years of almost unrequited horror, after all of the events that have befallen us on a national and a personal level, there are no tears left. There is no possibility for us to adequately mourn what has happened. The feeling that engulfs us is so overwhelming and so horrendous that we are numbed by it 
And therefore, because we are in that state of almost catatonic depression, a rabbi stepped in in their infinite wisdom, in their understanding of human psychology, especially the psychology of bereavement and of grief and of comfort and consolation, and ordained for us a set series of days and of observances that would enable us to funnel all of our grief to a proper focus and to allow a true expression of the feelings that exist within us. So the rabbis limited our observance of mourning to these three weeks of the year. And they did so in their characteristic fashion. By characteristic fashion, I mean that they gave these days a halachic framework. Without a halachic framework, without the rules and ritual and minutiae which constitute always the commemoration of all events in Jewish life, whether they be sad or happy, and these events sooner or later lose their significance, lose their meaning, and do not survive in history. One of the terrible tragedies which compounds the tragedy that it could have commemorated, but one of the terrible tragedies of our time is that no proper halachic outlet has been found for the commemoration of the Holocaust, for the commemoration of the destruction of European Jewry. And therefore, in all of the non-halachic commemorations which have come into being moving as they are inspirational as they are fraught with meaning and with remembrance as they all are and they nevertheless are beginning to fade the outlines are beginning to disappear and we hear often survivors say when we are gone no one will remember no one will be able to say no one will be able to relate what happened even though there is a tremendous spate of literature on the holocaust there are books upon books that have been written and will continue to be written the subject is almost inexhaustible at least from a literary point of view nevertheless the fear is legitimate and ever present that somehow as an historic event it will not survive in spite of the enormity in spite of the barbarity in spite of everything and the reason for this is because in our orphaned generation we have not been able to give it an halachic framework we've not been able to invest it with the eternity that halacha brings to a matter and therefore all of the commemorations and remembrances inspired as they may be I have within themselves the ring of being finite the ring of a hollow ring almost that it will not last our rabbis when they commemorated the destruction of the first temple and of the second temple when they commemorated the weeks of sadness they did so always in an halachic framework they said these things are permitted and these things are forbidden 
has nothing to do with your emotion. It has nothing to do with how you feel that day. It has nothing to do with one's own personal wishes and desires. The greatness of halacha is that it overrides and supersedes the emotions of the person at that moment. I have to eat matzah on the night of Pesach whether I feel like it or not. And because I have to and because I do, the night of Pesach eventually carries great significance and meaning for me and my children and grandchildren, for all the family of Israel. It has survived for 3,300 years because it is not dependent upon how I feel on that night or what my emotions are or whether I'm tired or whether I'm depressed or whether I'm in a good mood or a bad mood. The greatness of halacha is that it supersedes human frailty. It supersedes the vagaries of human behavior. It is an objective standard that overrides all of our subjective problems. And in so doing guarantees that what it comes to commemorate will be remembered eternally and will have deep meaning even thousands of years later after the event that it commemorates took place. And therefore the three weeks are the symbol of that greatness of halacha. The greatness of being able to perpetuate an event in historic terms over long, long periods of time and make it real to generations that did not see it. The structure of the three weeks, most of the commentaries to the Talmud in Mesechus Tainus come with the same approach that in Avelis, in mourning, there are three stages. By the way, just as an aside, the words of the rabbis do not require proofs from other sciences to make them valid. However, in this special field of bereavement counseling, of grief and of comfort, which has arisen over the past uh, 10 to 20 years, the study of grief has shown that there are three separate stages of the grief itself and that in each of the stages a different response is necessary. The halacha saw those three stages as the first stage being the immediate tragedy and dealing with the pain and that we call the week of Shiva the week of the seven days of mourning when the person sits on the floor when the person weeps when the outside world is of no consequence when the person is overcome yet by the tear that has occurred in the fabric of his or her life and the person has to deal with grief on an intimate personal basis that is the week of Shiva after the week ends there is the period of Shloshim the period of Shloshim is a 30 day period meaning an additional 23 days after the period of the Shiva and this is marked by less restrictions 
by a person getting out into the outside world. But it is also marked by the fact that he or she is not prepared to resume a fully normal life, not prepared to be exactly as things were before. Because the psychological realization that the person must adjust to is that things never will be as they were before. That life has changed irrevocably. Humpty Dumpty fell off the wall. All the king's men and all the king's horses can't put Humpty Dumpty back together again. Life is that Humpty Dumpty. You just can't pick up all the pieces and paste them together and go on. And Shloshim is that quality, that intermediate quality of the resumption of life, but of the resumption of life in full cognizance of the fact that life as it was before the event will never be that way again. Finally, there is an 11-month period of mourning for one's parents, Yudbeis Hodesh. 11 months plus the month of Shloshim. That already is that for almost all purposes the person is in the world. He has resumed all of his normal activities. But nevertheless, the halacha forbids him certain pleasures. It forbids him certain social activities. It forbids him certain things in his lifestyle that he had been accustomed to. Because now it is not only a question of easing the pain and of assuaging the grief, it's a question of remembrance, it's a question of honor, it's a question of priorities, it's a question of being able to transform the scar that exists within us from a wound to a source of remembrance to a source of inspiration even if I may say so to a source of hope rather than to a source of sadness well these three stages of grief are represented to us in the three weeks as well except in opposite order and the three weeks themselves meaning the period of time from the 17th of Tammuz to the first day of Av according to the custom of the Ashkenazim and according to the custom of the Svardim until the week in which Tishabov falls that could be viewed as having the same types of prohibitions the same type of restraints upon us as the 12 month period for parents we are still in the world we are still part of our normal existence but we remember that a tragedy happened we bring to our conscious memory and behavior the events that occurred so long ago and that causes us to pause and to realize the story of the Jewish people and the story of life itself that there are many more clouds than there is sunlight many more problems than there are solutions rare is the person that walks through life without major tragedy without major problems a person is born to toil born to frustration born to sadness if I may say so as I'll tell us that the words of Beishamai are correct 
If man would have his choice, it would be better for him to choose never to have been created, never to have to pass through this veil of tears, never to have to experience physical life on this earth in comparison to the spiritual life which exists in the world to come, which exists in a higher plane of living. But since we were not given the choice, you were created without consultation. No one asked you if you wanted to be here. And you were born against your will. One of the reasons probably that babies are born always wailing and crying. They don't want to come out. And life itself forces us to live. And no one leaves this world willingly either. We are forced to depart against our wish. And therefore we have no choice either in the din v'cheshven, in the reckoning, in the accounting of our time and efforts. That priority of Jewish life, that understanding that what happens to us, we would prefer that it never happen. But since it is out of our hands, we have to deal with it. And that is the idea of the mourning period, which represents the first section of the three weeks. We remember, we remember that there was such a thing as Jerusalem. Jewish people have kept that memory alive for thousands of years. Wherever Jews were in the world, Jerusalem was a real place. Jerusalem was not a political ideal. It was not even a national homeland. But it was a goal. It was a memory. It was home. And a Jew has never felt home. Even we in this blessed country that allows us all of our freedoms and in whose life we participate so fully. A Jew never feels as home, at home, as he does in Jerusalem, as he does in his home. There is an inner home within our souls that recognizes where we belong. The halacha is what kept it alive. The fact that in the three weeks we can't listen to music the fact that in the three weeks we don't take haircuts or shave. The fact that in the three weeks we minimize our joy. The fact that in the three weeks there are no weddings, there are no bar mitzvah parties. There are all sorts of restrictions, inhibitions. None major, all bearable. None interfering with our ability to earn a living or even to maintain our lifestyle. And there are numerous loopholes which allow us life as we are accustomed to. Nevertheless, those halachic restrictions by themselves, by their mere existence, serve to remind us of the fact that there once was a Jerusalem and that there once was a temple, that the Jewish people are not to be satisfied in the most comfortable of exiles. They are not to say, this is my home, but that there is a gnawing need within us to find Jerusalem again to mourn over it and to rebuild it at the beginning of this century 
one of the great rabbis of Eastern Europe, Rabbi Meir Simcha HaKohen of Dvinsk, of Lithuania, uh, of Latvia, really, the famous Or Sameach, wrote in his commentary to the Chumash, Meshe Chochma, a short synopsis of Jewish history, how Jews come into an exile, how Jews develop and participate in the economy and social life of the country that they find themselves in, how they wax prosperous, how they are able to enrich the life of their neighbors, how they are able to contribute to the society of the country that they find themselves in. And then suddenly and almost inexorably, opposite forces begin to take hold. Resentment comes, hatred, bigotry. And the Jew eventually pays a price, sometimes in exile, sometimes in death and destruction. And he is driven to find another place on God's earth. In our time, there are no other places. We have been everywhere. We've seen everything. There's nowhere left to run. But Mayor Simcha there says, in one of the most pithy statements which appears in his great work, Hoi ha'omrim Berlin shehu Yerushalayim. Woe to those who say that Berlin is Jerusalem. He said that in 1904. There were hundreds of thousands of Jews who believed that Berlin was Jerusalem. Who believed in the Kaiser. Who believed in German Enlightenment. Who believed in secular humanism. And all the great liberal values of 19th and 20th century man. Hoy, woe to those who said that Berlin is Jerusalem. Because Berlin became the symbol of the destruction, not only of Jerusalem, but the destruction of those who believed in Berlin. The destruction of all of European Jewry. Symbol of evil in its worst form. Of atrocities beyond description. Of hatred beyond understanding. And if we could paraphrase him today, I think the Mayor Simcha would write, Woe to those who think that New York is Jerusalem, that Williamsburg is Jerusalem, that Monroe is Jerusalem, that Muncie is Jerusalem, that Los Angeles is Jerusalem, that London is Jerusalem. Woe to them. Miscalculation. And the first part of the three weeks, therefore, with its inhibitions and restraints, with its slight limitations, serves to jog our memory, serves to point out to us that not everything is right, and that we are not as comfortable as we feel we are, that we should not be foolish enough to think that we live in a paradise and that we somehow are not part and parcel of the Jewish experience which is so clear and so penetrating to those who only wish to look at it honestly and to deal with it intelligently. An interesting point that has always 
fascinated me. Why did the rabbis ordain that a period of 12 months of mourning for one's parents is necessary? Whereas when it comes to the mourning regarding Rahman al-Islam, other members of the family, a spouse, children, siblings, 30 days was the period of mourning that was established. There was no 12-month duration. We'll get to the uh, remainder of that uh, lecture on the three weeks right after morning chizuk. It is 7.30 in the morning here on JM Sunday, Eastern Time in the morning. Thank you for joining us, and uh, we hope you are getting some inspiration and some knowledge from the uh, lectures of Rabbi Wine. We will continue, as I said, with the second part of uh, the three weeks lecture, and then in the 8 o'clock hour, we will um, present some of the lecture entitled The Land of Israel as a Jewish Value. Uh, right now, each and every Sunday through Thursday, we present to you Rabbi David Goldwasser. Rabbi Goldwasser's words, Here's Rabbi David Goldwasser with Morning Chizuk. Good morning. This specific period of the three weeks seems to imply that throughout the rest of the year, we don't really need to contemplate the Golos in the Chorban, the destruction of the base of Migdosh. However, we know that every day we pray in our tefillahs. We say, May our eyes behold your return to Zion. In Berchas Amazon, in the grace after meals, we say, May Hashem have compassion on Zion. On Yom Tov we recall, Because of our sins, we've been exiled from the land. So we do have references throughout the days of the year to the Chorban Beis HaMikdash. Why do we need this special time to remember the Chorban? The Dubna Magid tells of a wealthy merchant who had a son who rebelled against him. The father was compelled to send him away. The son was a big Balgaiva. He was very arrogant and was sure that he was going to be able to manage on his own. He went out into the big world and tried all different types of work. Although the father was very angry at his son, he still loved him, and he would often inquire after his son. He heard that his son was wandering in the city, living from hand to mouth, and he hadn't met with any success. But the father hoped that his son had learned his lesson, and had been humbled by the experience, and would finally come back home. The father waited to welcome him with open arms. One day, a wealthy merchant who came from the city arrived to discuss business with his father. They discussed their business, and eventually the subject of the son came up. When do you intend to bring your son back home? The father was asked. The father answered, When he's going to ask me forgiveness, I will certainly welcome him back home. The merchant said to him, Let me be the agent for your son. I will apologize and express his remorse and beg you to take him back. The father said, No way. You can't be a messenger, not on behalf of my son, and not for me. The merchant said, Why not? You would accept the word of a messenger for other things. 
True, said the father, but I want to see that my son is truly remorseful for what he did. If he'll come to me and tell me that he wants to begin anew and he regrets the past, I will listen. But right now, you don't represent him. You come to me on a business matter, and you just happen to ask me about my son. Similarly, says the Dubna Magid, Every day in our tefillahs, we ask for good health and for livelihood. Incidentally, we also recall the Golos and the Chorban. We remember to tack it onto our tefillahs at the beginning or at the end. However, that's not enough. Such a tefillah is not what's required. Our sages establish the three weeks so that we can specifically focus on the Chorban and its effects. We concentrate fully on the meaning of our tefillahs for the Geula, for the redemption. Then our Father in Heaven will welcome and accept our tefillahs and return to Shechina to Tzion. This has been Rabbi David Goldwasser bringing you morning physic. Have a nice day. Thank you, Rabbi Goldwasser. We're going to continue now with Rabbi Beryl Wine and uh, the topic of the three weeks. There are two insights that I have always felt apply, and they apply towards the understanding of the three weeks as well. Insight number one is that the death of parents, painful, tragic as it may be, is natural. It's part of the world. Especially if one is privileged to have had parents that have lived long and productive lives. Our rabbis tell us that when our father Abraham came to mourn his wife Sarah, so it says in the Torah of Aliv Kosah, he came to weep over her. So the word Liv Kosah is written with a small chof. And our rabbis say that he wept in moderation because she lived a long and full life. It's an acceptance of the human condition. People who live well into their 80s and their 90s, and they pass away. It's tragic. We certainly feel the loss. A mother is a mother at any age. A father is a father at any age and under any circumstance. But nevertheless, we can come to grips with it. That reason alone is why the Torah gave, why the halacha gave us a 12-month period of mourning, so that we should not come to grips with it. That we should not say, well, that's the way it goes. Which is the uh, macho American view of death. We hide death as though it doesn't exist. The entire funeral undertaker industry is to portray death not only as an invisible thing, but somehow pleasant. As somehow something that has to be taken in stride. People who do not deal with the reality of death usually are not able to deal with the reality of life. People who do not accept the pain that death must bring cannot really experience life correctly either. The starkness of death is what gives life its color and its flavor and what drives man forward to accomplish and to be noble. Otherwise, death becomes mundane. It's accepted. The rabbis didn't want it to become accepted. Therefore, the loss of a spouse, God forbid, of children, of siblings, 
that is unnatural, so to speak. And because of that, people don't accept it that readily. Thirty days of mourning is sufficient, therefore. But the death of a parent, which is in the nature of the chronology of life, a natural thing, something that has order and understanding to it and is more easily accepted, the rabbis wanted to point out that that also should not be accepted. That also has to be dealt with. And that the parent has to be memorialized. Has to be memorialized for the entire year. So that one remembers what one's parents meant to them. One is able to give honor. A rabbi say, Honor your father and your mother, even when they are dead. We owe them honor. We owe them respect. Again, that's a process of putting life into some sort of perspective. As being able to see things in a Jewish point of view. Now, the danger regarding the temple also. Jews become comfortable in the exile. It's natural, right? Two thousand years without the temple. Eh, nobody's knocking themselves out to rebuild the temple. We're 2,000 years without our own homeland, without our own country. Jews became accustomed to that also. During it is uh, ironic to note that during the time when the question of the Jewish state in the 1940s was on the agenda, many, many great and assimilated Jews spoke against it because they were comfortable in the United States or they were comfortable in England or they were comfortable wherever they were they did not want to become discomfited by this new intrusion of the Jewish people on the scene and therefore the first step of the three weeks is to remind us that it's not natural for the Jewish people to be without its homeland it's not accepted for the Jewish people to be without a temple in Jerusalem. That we have lost something. And that even though we are able to live and survive and prosper and achieve in spite of the loss, we recognize it as a loss. We want to redress the loss. We want to regain what we once had. We are not happy, nor are we committed to a life that does not include Zion and Jerusalem, that does not include a Jewish state, that does not include the temple in Jerusalem, that does not include all the blessings that the Lord our God bestowed upon that land and set aside for us as his people to enjoy therein. Another reason why the period of mourning for parents is 12 months and for others in only 30 days is because the intensity of grief God forbid for the loss of siblings of children of a spouse is of such a nature that it never heals there never is a moment when the pain disappears it is sublimated 
it changes but it's always there I once heard from a great rabbi who said that when he came from the funeral of his wife he said it is not that I buried my wife on the cemetery but that a piece of me was buried there as well when it comes to parents again no matter how deep the pain is not only does one get over it one is able to adjust to it in a different fashion completely and in order to emphasize again that role of parents because parents are not a piece of me I'm a piece of them that's a great difference but in order to emphasize that relationship in order to structure and build a life that has correct meaning and values the rabbis ordained this 12 month period of mourning as a constant reminder as to the continuity and flow of life and of generations the temple in Jerusalem also was meant to do that it pointed out the continuous nature of God's relationship with the Jewish people as long as the temple was in Jerusalem the Jews had no doubt as to their creator's interest in them and as to the divine intervention which has always been part of Jewish existence and Jewish experience now that that is gone the halacha bids us remember it observe the absence of it and the only way that that observance can take place the only way that remembrance can take place is through halachic prohibitions the second stage which is that of Shloshim is called according to Ashkenazic Jewry the nine days which means from Mashodesh Av from the first of Av until after Tishabov and the Svardim following the custom of the Talmud commemorate it as the week in which Tishabov falls during this period of time just as during Shloshim there are greater restraints upon our behavior our diet changes we don't eat meat we don't drink wine our uh, personal habits also are altered we don't bathe in the same fashion that we do all year round we are limited in personal matters not only in social and entertainment matters and this intensification of grief comes to bring home to us I feel the problems that exist in the present day Jewish world problems that after so many centuries and after so many millennia have never disappeared the problems from the outside and the problems from the inside the nature of hatred of the Jewish people the nature of anti-semitism 
which is a word that was coined in the 19th century, which according to the words of the rabbis has existed from the moment of Sinai onwards, is the most perplexing of all human phenomena. What does the world want from us? Why are we so victimized? This small people that has contributed so much to the benefit of mankind has always found itself on the brink of annihilation, has always found itself frightened, alone, challenged, persecuted, and ready for destruction. How to counteract this type of world, how to live in it, how to be able to deal with unremitting hatred. That is the problem of the nine days. The halachic prohibitions of the nine days bring to us a sense of urgency, bring to us a sense of reality. The Kotzker once said in one of his great aphorisms that there really are no fast days in the Jewish calendar, no days of fasting. His words were, on Yom Kippur, there will essen, on Tisha there can essen. On Yom Kippur, who wants to eat? One is so consumed by the spirituality of the day. On Tisha B'Av, who can eat? One is so consumed by the tragedy, by the sadness, by the realization of our condition, that there is no room for appetite. There is no room for food. In our time, when anti-Semitism has taken a toll unimagined in all of Jewish history, we know how precarious our situation is. We know what can happen. We have seen it happen. Does anyone harbor any illusions as to what type of treatment Syrians, the PLO, the other enemies of Israel today would give to us if they had the ability to control our destiny? Hitler and Stalin proved that you can do whatever you want. Chairman Mao, all of the great leaders of our century, with rare exceptions, have been bloodthirsty killers. In the 20th century, I've seen more human life destroyed than all of the other centuries of human experience combined. It's a frightening world. And there are no rules, and there is no conscience, and there really is no defense against it. This overriding problem serves as the focal point, I feel, of all Jewish debate. Some Jews say, well, let us arm ourselves never again. We will not allow it to happen. Would that be? I pray that such a solution would be a valid one. But in my heart's heart, I doubt it. There are not enough Uzis in the world. There is simply not enough Jewish manpower, Jewish firepower to destroy all of our enemies. It is only the divine intercession that prevents the concentration of enmity against us from functioning efficiently that has preserved us until today. We will be unable 
to match the world gun for gun, bullet for bullet. And because of that, therefore, we are in dire straits. Many Jews, therefore, give up. They leave. They assimilate. I think an unconscious but powerful motivation in assimilation is simply be the danger of being Jewish. And there comes a period of, in one's life when one says it's not worth it anymore. I always rem recall the story of a young man that came to my yeshiva. He was an emigre from the Soviet Union. And he was brought to our yeshiva. And the, the father wanted that the child should be registered in the yeshiva. He wanted him to have a primarily a good English education. And he was willing to allow the Hebrew education to occur as well. This young boy, who then was 14, was not circumcised because as is true of most Russian Jews circumcision was banned in Russia liberal progressive peace loving government felt that it was a barbaric act the same non-barbaric people who sent a hundred million people to the Gulag and to Siberia so he was not circumcised I spoke with the father and I told him that before the son comes to the yeshiva he should make certain that the contact one of the number of organizations, religious organizations that deal with Russian immigrants and to see to it that the bris, the circumcision takes place. The father told me that he didn't feel that he wanted that his child should be circumcised. I said, well, I, I don't understand why. He said, well, I'll tell you why. He said, my father told me that when the Nazis came to their village in Russia in the Second World War, every male that was circumcised was shot, even those that were not Jewish. And that it was the indelible mark of identification for Jewish males anyone that was circumcised was killed he said well what if the Nazis come again what if somebody else comes again why should I subject my child to such dangers I had never thought of it in that fashion and I really didn't have a good answer to give him at that moment and he left Two weeks later he called me and he said that he wants to enroll his son and he told me you'll be happy to know that my son has been circumcised and not only that he said I also was circumcised. I was delighted at the news and I asked him what caused you to change your mind? He said well I thought about it and I thought about it and I thought about it and I said if I'm sending him to yeshiva he said, I want to circumcise him so that when they come to take him, he'll at least know why he's being taken. When they come to kill him, he'll realize what it's all about. Many therefore opt out.
They don't want to be circumcised, so they don't want to be taken. That's understandable, but it's not justifiable. The Jewish people have preserved their courage in the face of unremitting enmity. And the nine days come to point out to us that that enmity has not disappeared. That even though it changes its form on a regular basis, the inherent problem still exists. It has not changed. And therefore, it's not a world of meat and wine. It's not a world of joy and happiness for us world of problems bitter bitter problems and to the extent that we can mitigate whatever anti-semitism exists in our society we should certainly do so but we have to understand that in the grander aspect of the situation there really is very little that we can do and that we are subject to the terrors of that terrible terrible disease the nine days also remind us of an internal problem, one that has also not changed over long, long centuries. Our rabbis tell us that the nine days, that the destruction of the temple, that Tishabov, at least in terms of the second temple, was a product of hatred, intolerance, bigotry between Jew and Jew the words of the rabbis are that the Churban came about because of Sina Spina hatred for no reason the Jewish people are by nature a fractious and divided people that's not always bad every Jew wants to do his own thing we have therefore great many Jewish organizations a great many Jewish educational institutions a great many synagogues the nature of the Jewish people is to be disunited that creates a ferment of competition it creates a freshness of ideas it has a place but unfortunately, it also creates a climate of hatred. Climate that I'm the only one that's right. Not only are you wrong, but I despise you for being different. I want you to conform to me. If you don't conform, then you're doomed to destruction. That hatred is still present amongst us. Jews are such a wise people that it's difficult to understand how we have not progressed further in attempting to solve this problem. Perhaps it is our nature of disunity that leads to our nature of self-hatred to the nature of 
despising other Jews for the nature of being intolerant for the nature of being smug and self-righteous and condescending and causing therefore pain and grief to others Sinas Chinam has not departed from the Jewish scene on other occasions I have spoken about the problems of fanaticism and of intolerance of extremism the personal hurts and hates and the terrible climate that is, that is created in certain Jewish circles in almost all Jewish circles I know no camp that is really free of the disease as long as Jews think that way about each other as long as Jews are unable to deal with other Jews with equality and respect and with sensitivity with love and compassion and again the rabbi said it's not a time for wine and meat it's not the time the hurt is too great the tear, the wound is too fresh because what happened 2,000 years ago and the destruction of the second temple is happening today nothing has changed if nothing has changed we don't commemorate an historic event that occurred long ago but we recognize a current problem that requires our immediate attention it is a festering sore on the body of the Jewish people well, there's a lot of lip service that is paid for unity for all sorts of gestures of amity between Jews I don't come to decry any of that but certainly what is required is a basic change of attitude and that change of attitude must be within the person himself the nine days come to change our attitude to change our attitude towards life change our attitude towards other Jews to make us appreciate how real the dangers are how strong the problems are and how current the commemoration of a destruction that occurred so long ago really is we're not talking only about the destruction of the temple we're talking about our own self-destruction today we have to do something about it otherwise it will come and it will overcome us overwhelm us it will mock our efforts it will undo all of our achievements it will leave us again God forbid in a state of destruction and depression and in a state of hopelessness the day of Tishabov itself so to speak is the culmination of our grief the day of Tishabov, the ninth day of love is a sad day on the Jewish calendar and it has been a sad day on the Jewish calendar almost from the dawn of our history our rabbis tell us that it was the ninth day of Av on the night of the ninth day of Av that the Jewish people 
mourned when they learned of the report of the spies and of the negative things that they said regarding the land of Israel and that the heavenly voice commented tonight you mourn for no reason but on this night over the long centuries of Jewish history you will mourn on this night for very good cause the first temple was destroyed on the ninth day of Av the second temple the destruction began on the ninth day of Av even though the main fire and destruction was on the tenth day of Av our rabbis combined the commemoration of both destructions on the ninth day of Av though there are opinions in the Talmud that the commemoration of the destruction of the second temple is of such a nature that it should have been extended to the tenth day as well certain commemorations are extended to the tenth day it is not till after noon of the tenth day that we do laundry that we eat meat that we drink wine that is all in commemoration of the fact that the main destruction of the second temple was on the tenth day of Av. the beginning of its destruction was on the ninth day of Av. in the long history of the Jewish people other events occurred on the ninth day of Av, which were of very great and tragic consequences to the Jewish people the ninth day of Av marked the final day that the Jews of Spain in 1492 were allowed to emigrate the expulsion from Spain is therefore also part of the commemoration of the day of Tishabov. in more recent times in the beginning of the first the spark that set the first world war into motion and the declaration of war itself was on the ninth day of Av. the first world war marks the complete dislocation of the Jewish people of Eastern Europe in effect in historic retrospect we could say it was already the beginning of the end of European Jewry the litany of sadness that occurred on that day is therefore almost without end on this night shall my children weep this night is the commemoration of all of the troubles of the Jewish people and again because of the fact that it would be impossible for us to commemorate all of those troubles throughout the calendar year our rabbis and Jewish tradition saw fit so to speak to lump all the troubles together on one time and it became a commemoration for everything and therefore in the kinos in the elegies which are read and the poems of lamentation which form the basic part of the service of Kino of Tishabov. There are kinos for the Crusades, even though the Crusades did not happen in the time of Ov, but rather in the Sphira time and the time of Shavuos. There are uh, elegies regarding the burning of the books of the Talmud by King Louis the Ninth in Paris in the thirteenth century. There are kinos regarding the expulsion of the Jews from England under Richard the Lionhearted. There are kinos that mark each and every one of the terrible tragedies which has occurred to the Jewish people over all of the times of their dispersion and places of their dispersion. 
Tisha B'Av also marks the debacle of Shabzai Tzvi, the false messiah, who perhaps more than any other person undid the fabric of Jewish life, uh, brought doubt where faith had once great reigned supreme, and from whose apostasy uh, much of modern Jewish history can be directly traced. Shabzai Tzvi claimed to have been born on the ninth day of Av, and that was perhaps a necessary invention on his part since he claimed to be the Messiah and he wanted to live up to the prediction which the rabbis mentioned that on the ninth day of Av the Jewish people experienced their destruction of the temples but the ninth day of Av also marks the beginning of the birth of the Messiah he interpreted that literally and claimed to have been born on Tishabov. So the entire Jewish history speaks to the ninth day of Av as the saddest day of the Jewish calendar. In our time, many people have taken to commemorate the Holocaust on the ninth day of Av, with special kinos recited in memory of the six million martyrs of our brethren who passed away so brutally in the 20th century. Nevertheless, the main thrust of the ninth day of Av remains the destruction of the temple, the destruction of Jerusalem, the beginning of the Jewish exile, and the problems that are created and have been created and continue to exist in Jewish life because of those desperate events. The ninth day of Av also brings with it, as does all events of tragedy in Jewish life a glimmer of hope a silver lining now rabbis say on the verse Korah Olai Moed that Rabboni Shalom has called this ninth day of Av Moed a day of holiday an appointed day and therefore even though it's the saddest day on the Jewish calendar nevertheless for instance we do not recite Tachanun we do not recite the prayers of supplication on that day because eventually it will be moed. Eventually it will be abolished as a day of sadness and a day of mourning and will take its place as a day of holiday and rejoicing amongst the Jewish people. It's interesting, again, as an historic note to deal with Shabzai Tzvi that in order to buttress his position as the Messiah, so this charlatan abolished Tishabov. This is based upon the story that we read in Treosor, in the book of the Twelve Prophets, that the Nevi'im, Haggai, Zechariah, Malochi, who were present at the rebuilding of the Second Temple and the return of the Jewish people from the Babylonian exile to Palestine, to the land of Israel, instituted that the ninth day of Av shall no longer be a fast day and that it shall no longer be a day of mourning and therefore Shabzai Tzvi attempted to buttress his claim to be the Messiah by abolishing Tisha B'Av. well one can abolish Tisha B'Av, but one cannot abolish the troubles of Tisha B'Av. one cannot acknowledge that the problems that led to Tisha B'Av, the destruction that Tisha B'Av commemorates, 
all exists. It's real yet. It's part and parcel of the Jewish burden that we bear and of the Jewish past and that we therefore have to deal with it. And Tishabov, as we sit on the floor and as we contemplate the enormity of the weight upon us, Tishabov therefore has the ability to assuage our grief slightly. But we look forward again to the fact that Tishabov will be moed. It will be an appointed time of joy and of happiness, of significance and accomplishment. That the long and troubled history of the Jewish people has a purpose. And all of the sacrifices, all of the blood and pain and tears has not been in vain, will not be wasted. Rabboni Shalom, in the imagery of the Jewish poets, has a vessel, a container, in which every human tear, every Jewish tear has been collected. Shetosim dimoseinu benotcho God place our tears in your container so that it shall forever exist before you. If every tear is counted, if every tear has a place and is not wasted, certainly every life, every sacrifice, every moment of pain and frustration and grief which has been exerted on a noble cause also will not easily disappear. Also will remain from generation to generation, from time to time. And therefore our rabbis said truly that those who mourn for Zion on Tisha B'Av, and those who appreciate what has been lost, what has been taken from us, will be privileged to see the restoration of Zion and the building of Jerusalem speedily and in our day. Amen. Thank you, Rabbi Wine, for that presentation of the three weeks. Uh, you are listening to JM Sunday, right here on the Nachum Siegel Network. Matzah Swinecast with you, 23rd of July, 5th of Av. We're going to continue now for the rest of the show with uh, Rabbi Wine's discussion of the land of Israel as a Jewish value. Uh, because of the time, we're ending at 9 o'clock. We won't be able to get to the whole thing, but we will have, we will be able to hear most of it, uh, and we will continue with that. Here is uh, Rabbi Beryl Wine with the land of Israel as a Jewish value. Tonight's uh, topic uh, deals with Eretz Israel as a value. Now, and I'm talking as a uh, political statement or as an idea of uh, Jewish nationalism, but as a religious value, because this entire series deals with values, and the value of Eretz Israel as uh, an idea uh, is one of the most supreme values in all of Torah and all of the Jewish people. I read an article uh, before Yom Yerushalayim written by the chief rabbi of Haifa, Rav Shor Yashuv Cohen, uh, who uh, the thrust of the article uh, was a remembrance of his experiences in Yerushalayim. He was captured in the 1948 war. He spent nine months in the Jordanian prison camp, lost part of his leg. Uh, and he writes about his experiences uh, regarding Yerushalayim over the past 57 years. But one of the things that he pointed out is, uh, and he said it very clearly, he said that Medinat Yisrael, the state of Israel, is meant to be 
a conduit that is meant to be a means to achieve Eretz Israel, the land of Israel. And in other words, that the state and our nationalism and everything that we have accomplished, that's not the end, that's only the means. And the means, uh, he quotes naturally from his father, the Nazir, and uh, from Rav Kook, uh, that the physical rebuilding of the Jewish people is a necessary prerequisite for the spiritual rebuilding of the Jewish people. But it is not the end. The end is that spiritual rebuilding. As he calls it, it's the rebuilding of Eretz Israel and not just of Medina Israel. So we speak about Eretz Israel here as a value, as one of the ideas... Uh, that has been constant throughout Jewish history. And it's been constant. It's interesting whether the Jewish people were here in the land of Israel or whether they were in the diaspora, in the exile. Uh, because uh, we see in the Nevi'im, uh, the Nevi'im always speak about how does Eretz Israel react uh, to the behavior of the people who live there. As though Eretz Yisrael is a living thing. It's not a passive piece of land, but it's a living organism. And this living organism reacts to what happens on it, around it, through it. And that that's the value, uh, that's the idea of what Eretz Yisrael represents. Now, the Jewish people spent most of their history outside the land of Israel. Uh, we're a people that are uh, 33, over 3,300 years old from Yitzhak Mitzrayim, and most of the time we have not been here. And whenever we have been here, uh, it has not been sweetness and light. There were periods, good periods, the period of David HaMelech, the period of Shlomo HaMelech, 80 years. Then it started to fall apart. Uh, in the time of uh, the second temple, the period of the Hashmanoim, so the first hundred years uh, was a good time, and then it fell apart. And it's been a difficult, difficult situation always regarding living in the land of Israel. And the reason for that is because we are trying to translate a spiritual value into an everyday life, into a state that has to function, into all of the problems of everyday living. It's much easier to deal with it as an imaginary thing, because then you never have any disappointments, and you don't have to worry about it, and you don't have to collect taxes, and you don't have the, the whole problem. But how do we make it work practically uh, that is a major challenge, and that challenge has faced the Jewish people every time they've been here in the land of Israel. So we find that uh, during the time of Yoshua and the Shoftim, so during the time of Yoshua, the Jewish people still were afraid of Yoshua because they still were afraid of Moshe. Moshe had such a lasting influence upon them that as long as Yoshua was here, they still thought that Moshe was here. But when Yoshua died, so then Vayibi Shvota Shoftim, we read now in the Megillah of Ruth, Shvota uh, Shoftim Rashi says the judges were judged. 
the Jewish people said, in effect, Miata, who are you to tell me to do anything? Everybody did whatever they wanted to. It was the ultimate pluralistic society. Do whatever you want. So then it's chaos. Falls apart. So then God has to remind them that they're Jews, right? So he sends the Plishtim, he sends the Amalekim, he sends the Canaanim. All sorts of problems. And it takes time until David Amelech comes on the scene... Uh, that the situation somehow becomes ameliorated. Now it becomes livable. And uh, during the last years of David, the last 20 years of David, and the first 25, 30 years of Shlomo Melech, so then it is finally what Eretz Yisrael is supposed to be. And they build a temple, and everything is wonderful. But people, especially the Jewish people, cannot stand prosperity. They cannot stand that everything should be wonderful, so they have to make it not so wonderful. And uh, Shlomo uh, wanders away, and then there's a rebellion, and the Urban ben Nevot, and then they split into two kingdoms, and then they become idolaters and pagans, and that's the story. So because of that, Eretz is the most sensitive topic to discuss. And I hesitated to put it down on the sheet as one of the values to discuss, because I'm well aware that whatever one says uh, can unfortunately be subject to misinterpretation, and also because it's so sensitive, because we're living here and we're part of it, and therefore we feel it perhaps differently than in the theory of Eretz Israel. The Gemara says, Gimul Matonos Nosan HaKadosh Baruch Yisrael. God gave us three gifts. Below Nosan Yisurim. And all three come with great pain. The three gifts are Torah. If you want to be a Talmud Chacham, if you want to study Torah, then it's sacrifice, it's Yisurim, it's uh, giving up hours and time. If you want to be a great Talmud Chacham, so then it requires an enormous amount of concentration, willpower. It's Yisurim. It's not easy. Anyone who has ever opened the Daf Gemara and looked at it, is the page itself is sufficient to dissuade you from going further. That three different fonts on the page, it's, uh, it's written in a language that uh, very difficult for us. We don't speak Aramaic anymore. And then you have Rashi on one side, and Tosas on the other side, and then you have uh, the Rosh on the back, and nobody agrees on anything with it. It's Biyasurim. If you want to accomplish something, then you have to pay for it. The second thing the Gemara says is Eretz Yisrael. Eretz Yisrael comes Biyasurim. It's a matona. So look at the language of the Talmud. The language of the Talmud is that it's a gift. Meaning we're not entitled the language of Matona is always that you're not entitled. It's a gift. There are certain things in life that we think we're entitled to. But there in the Talmud, when it says Matona, so you're not entitled to be a Talmud Chochem, you have to earn it. You're not entitled there, it's Israel, you have to earn it. How do you earn it? The Yisurin, right? And we can all testify what that means. 
the Jewish people for over the past hundred years here in Eretz Israel, every day is Yisurim. Every day is problems. Every day is blood. Every day is all of the difficulties that we're so well aware of. And the greatest Yisurim is that you don't see any way out of it. That's, you know, as long as you see a way out of it, then people, uh, people uh, almost are happy to absorb the Yisurim. But Yisurim on end with no way out so that already is a different level of pain and the third gift that Gemara says is Olam eternity immortality so you only gain that also through sacrifice you only gain that also through willing to undergo sacrifice and pain so because of that we have this great concept that Eretz soil has to be earned now you have another concept that God promised it to us. He told us from the beginning, He told Avram Avinu, I'm giving you this land. It's going to be yours. He told it to Yitzchak. He told it to Yaakov. He's told it to us from the beginning of time. This is your land. I'm giving it to you. The only thing is that when it comes uh, to the bottom line, uh, it's not our land. Avram Avinu wants uh, to bury his wife Zora, so he has to buy the Morasamachpela from the Benechis from Ephron for, for an enormous amount of money. The Rashi there quotes the Medrash that says Avram, the, the greatness of Avram was that he didn't say to God, but you promised me, you said it's my land. What do you mean? I got to pay him 400 shekel over La Socher, the best mint coins. You promised it to me. And Yitzchak digs wells all over the country, and all the wells the Philistines uh, take over. They stop them up. They throw them out. And Yitzchak does not say, but you promised me that the land is mine. And Yaakov Avinu, when he comes back from Lovon, so he has to buy the land by Shem, and he doesn't say again, you know, God, you promised me. You told me it would be mine. So that's part of the definition of Yusurin. Yusurin is when you have to buy and sacrifice for what is yours. What belongs to you already. You have to start all over again. Which is in essence what happened to the Jewish people over the last hundred years. Whether it be through... uh, the Karen Kayemet, or through private funds, or whatever, or purchase, you have to buy it all over again. Because of the fact that that's Eretz Yisrael, and it needs to be Yisurim. So we have to be prepared for that. We have to realize that on one hand it's ours, it was promised to us by God, and God's promises are valid. God's contract has never defaulted. And on the other hand, uh, we have to earn it. We have to buy it. We have to fight for it. We have to bleed for it. It's not ours. And that balance, uh, that contradiction almost, uh, lies at the heart of the Yisurian of Eretz Yisrael. Now, the Talmud has... Very, the Talmud is very, very pro Eretz Israel. Let's put it that way. 
the Talmud uh, has almost a hidden anger, and this is the Babylonian Talmud, let alone the Yerushalmi, the uh, Talmud that was written in Eretz Yisrael. The Talmud has almost a hidden anger at people that don't come to Eretz Yisrael when they have an opportunity to do so. When the Jewish world had an opportunity to do so. The Gemara says, for instance, by Ezra, that at the time of Ezra, most of the Jews stayed in Bavel. They didn't come back. And the Talmud says, If they would have come up in waves, if they would have come home, then the second temple would have had all of the spiritual glory and miracles that the first temple had. But because the Jews didn't want it, so God said, Okay, so you don't want it, I, I don't want it either. They didn't come back. And throughout the history of the Second Temple, there were tremendous uh, Jewish communities all over the Mediterranean basin, in Rome, in Greece, in Bovell, in, uh, uh, in Egypt, in Alexandria. And the rabbis always held that against them. And therefore the rabbi said, for instance, Hoshivani Hashem, the Lord has made me dwell in darkness, Zu Talmudo Shalbovel. That's the Babylonian Talmud. The Babylonian Talmud, which the Gemara speaks about itself, is darkness because it was composed in Bovel. And uh, Bovel uh, had a very, very high spiritual state. Great Talmudic Chachomim, great Yeshivas, a great Jewish community. So, let me just quote to you a few Gemaras. Because the Gemara says that the land itself has a holiness to it. The land itself has a holiness to it. It's called Eretz HaKodesh, the Holy Land. So you don't hear it so much amongst Jews, but in the non-Jewish world they still call it the Holy Land. Eretz HaKodesh, the land itself has holiness, independent of who is there. And independent of how people behave there. The land itself is holy. So the Gemara says, an interesting Gemara, Rabbi Brokio, Rabbi Lezer ben Pedos, Hoyumataili in Derech Shart Veria. Two of the Talmudim of Rabbi Yochanan. Rabbi Yochanan had the great yeshiva in Tveria in the third century. So two of his Talmudim, Rabbi Brokio and Rabbi Lezer ben Pedos, uh, they were uh, taking a walk by the Yom Kinneret, by uh, the gate to Tveria. Now, in the ancient world, in the time of the Talmud, Tveria, as today, was a great burial ground. Had large Jewish cemeteries. The uh, great hill uh, on which the tomb of Rebmeir Balanes perches on top, that whole hill is a cemetery. It has thousands and thousands, if not tens of thousands of graves in it. Because the cemeteries at the time of the Talmud were caves that were dug into the side of the mountain. And that uh, it was because of the shortage of land, uh, they uh, let the body decompose for a year. And then they collected the bones and put them in an ossuary and a ceramic jar and the jar they put in the, in the cave and then they had room to bury again 
was a uh, different system than we are accustomed to. In any event, they are at the gates of Tveria, and they see they're bringing bodies from Chutzlaretz, right, to be buried in Eretz Yisrael. So here we have two different opinions. And the two opinions are very sharply stated. And you can hear them both today as well. They resonate in our world. Who needs them? What value are they coming now to get buried here? When they were alive, they didn't come. They weren't interested to live in Eretz Israel. And now they come and we have corpses. I say that this posik refers to them. That's Bechayetem. My country, my land, the land of Israel, you treated it abominably. That was while you were alive. You didn't come. And now you have come and you have defiled my country because a mace brings with it, tumor brings with it defilement. So he's not very happy. He didn't come, he said, who needs you now? Oh my Lord, Rabbi Elezer. So Rabbi Elezer ben said to him, no, 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 you're wrong. Lohi. It's not correct. Since they will be buried in the land of Israel, and they will have the dust, the dirt of Eretz Israel will cover their bodies. It brings forgiveness to them. It says, Vesiper Admosol Amo. Moshe Rabbeinu said, The land of Israel is a kapora for the people. And therefore, uh, if uh, they come even to be buried, so then the holiness of the land is such that that fact that they're buried here is alone sufficient to bring forgiveness for all their sins. Now, uh, we realize... uh, that throughout the ages, the Jews desired to be buried in Eretz Israel. And they came, their bodies were brought from far distant countries in order to be able to be buried in Eretz Israel. And one of the few uh, uh, permissible uh, times when a body can be exhumed and reburied is when the body is taken from outside Eretz Israel to be reburied in the land of Israel. That's because the land itself is holy. And therefore, the holy soil of the land brings a kapora for the person, even if the person did not come during his or her lifetime. And uh, because of that, there was a custom, there still is the custom throughout the Jewish world, that even the Jew that passes away in the exile and is buried outside of Eretz soil. But uh, in the grave, uh, earth from Eretz Yisrael is always placed there. 
because the earth of Eretz Yisrael is Vesiper Admoso Amo, and that's what he said, Gush Ofor Eretz Yisrael, a piece of the dust of the dirt of Eretz Yisrael is sufficient to bring a kapor for a person. So we see that one of the values of Eretz Yisrael is that it is holy. And the rule in Jewish law is If you are attached to purity, to holiness, then you become somewhat holy. It's, a, uh, it's an osmosis effect. It seeps into you, whether you want it or not. And therefore, Eretz Yisrael has that value that for the Jewish people it brings holiness to us. And it's one of the mitzvahs, there are two mitzvahs, the, the Bali Musa said, there are two mitzvahs that a Jew can, the, the word in Lithuania was that he can walk in with his boots. The one is in the sukkah, right? You go into the sukkah, so you have the mitzvah. And one is Eretz Yisrael. You come to Eretz Yisrael, you walk in, you're here, that's the mitzvah. So that's the only, those are the only mitzvahs that, so to speak, you know, you can do with your boots on. You just walk in. You don't doesn't require uh, any great thought on your part as much as it requires just your presence in a certain place. Second idea regarding Eretz Israel I want to walk in front of God in the land of the living. So the Gemara says, Eretz Yisrael. Eretz Yisrael is the land of the living. And the Gemara says that Tchiyas HaMesim begins in Eretz Yisrael. And we have that concept that's called Gilgul Mechilos. That uh, when the dead are resurrected, so there will be tunnels that will exist uh, that will uh, be able that the Jews who are buried outside Eretz Yisrael are able to roll to Eretz Yisrael because in Eretz Yisrael is where Tchiyas HaMesim will be. By tradition, uh, Tchiyas HaMesim will begin on the Mount of Olives, on Harazesim. And that's why Harazesim became the original famous Jewish cemetery in the world. And that's why the Hebra Kedisha charges more money there than in other places. And you know that Jews like to be first in line, right? So it's going to happen, so you might as, well, might as well be there. But that's the same concept, that there's a holiness to the land itself. And the holiness is that it's Eretz HaChayim, it's you're alive. Even if the person is physically not alive. But being in Eretz Yisrael, because of Echiper Admoso Amo... Uh, then he is considered to be alive. And the Gemara says, Tzadikim b'misosam nikroim chayim. Righteous people, even if they have passed from the world, are still called living people. And rishoyim b'chayim, evil people, even if they're still walking around on the earth, nikroim mesim, they're dead already. The definition of life and death is not necessarily whether a person is breathing. It has to do with our soul, it has to do with our eternity, it has to do with our memory, it has to do with what people think of us, what generations think of us. And therefore, the, gener- the definition of Chaim and Mesim is different. 
So the Gemara therefore says, Yeshivas Eretz Yisrael mitzvah bismayatzma. Living in Eretz Yisrael is a mitzvah all by itself. So just being here is a mitzvah. You accomplish a mitzvah daily by being here. Not only that, the Gemara says that if you walk four Amos in Eretz Yisrael, every four Amos you walk, you have a mitzvah. I, had a, I knew a great Jew, Elio Kitov, Monkotovsky. He had Elio Kitov wrote the Sefer Aparshias and the Sefer Atoda. Uh, he was one of, he was a remarkable person. I remember he came to Chicago. I was 15 years old. He came to Chicago and he spoke. He was a gifted orator, just a tremendous orator. The old-time Polish orators that could speak for two hours and it was like uh, five minutes. And he was, a, he was a tremendously charismatic, wonderful person. And then I got to know him again in Miami, and then uh, here in Eretz Yisrael, before he passed away, I saw him a few times. So he told me a story once that a Jew, a rabbi, came from the United States, and he was visiting him, and he started complaining about how things are here, which is not hard to do especially if you come from the outside, so then, you know. So if you read the newspaper, you're, you know, you're depressed every day. Except for an occasional column, but otherwise... <laughs> otherwise, it's very depressing, right? So he was telling, he was telling Mokotowski everything that's wrong. So Monkotovsky took him by the hand, Elio Kitov, he took him by the hand, and he took him outside the door of his apartment, and he said, come, we're going to take a walk. One, two, three, four, a mitzvah. One, two, three, four, a mitzvah. He made him walk four amas every time. He says, a mitzvah. He said, well, that, that's how you have to look at Eretz Yisrael. Don't tell me what the... So it's a confusion, and I think that's an important point. You, you should not confuse... The government, the policies, the, uh, the national structure of the state of Israel with Eretz Israel. It's two different things. And because we confuse the two, so unfortunately there are Jews that don't appreciate Eretz Israel Because they don't like the government. Or they don't like the way Jews behave here. Or they see always the shadows instead of the light. But yet you're not allowed to see Eretz Yisrael that way. It was the whole lesson with the Meraglim that Moshe sent the spies. Everything they said was true. But then they added one thing. They said, but, but the land is no good. That, that sealed their doom. That you could say there are giants in the land. You could say it will be hard to conquer it. You can say there are great fortresses. You can say the United Nations is against us. You can say everything. That's all true. But you can't say anything about Eretz Israel. Motsi dibosom roa. They said bad things about the land. Eretz ocheles yoshveri, they said. It's a land that destroys its people. Oh no, God said, no, no, no. There you cross the red line. Can't talk about Eretz Yisrael. You have to always talk, Bishvocho shel Eretz Yisrael. 
You always have to talk about what the greatness of it. And the other things you can say. There's no problem in saying that there are giants in the land, that it's going to be hard and it's going to be this, and the, and the Kanani are here, and the Frizi are here, and all that after was true. They, they were not punished for saying that. That was their job to come back and give the report. But their conclusion of saying, Eretz Ocheles Yoshveli, that it's a country that destroys people. Oh, no, 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 no. No, no, no. Not that. That God didn't allow. And so that's a basic rule. So again, you know, you can disagree with the government. And they give you plenty of reason to do so. And you can disagree with policies, and you disagree, but you cannot disagree with Eretz Yisrael. Because that's an overriding value. It's such an overriding value that Chazal say, Gimel You want to have a fast-tracked Olam You know, like in the computer now, uh, if uh, four seconds is too long for you to wait till you get on the internet... So they have like a streaming broadband that's always on and you're there in a second, right? You mean the shortcut. So what's the shortcut, Olam So the Gemara says, Zador Eretz Yisrael. If you live in Eretz Yisrael, that's a shortcut, Olam So the rabbi saw it as such an overriding value that uh, that it, it can take you to Olamabo. Just being an Eretz Yisrael can take you in Olamabo. And the Gemara said that you have to treat Eretz Yisrael with respect. The land, again. Gemara says, They didn't want to grow sheep, goats in Eretz Yisrael because they eat up all the grass, they destroy the country. So they have to have special reservations for them in places, mostly in the deserts. There's zoning laws that the Gemara is full of regarding Eretz Yisrael, and especially regarding Yerushalayim. You can't have smoke in the city, and you can't have manufacturing. Because the place is holy. You have to treat it holy. And if it's holy, you can't do everything you want. It has restrictions with it. The Gemara says, why does it rain in the world? <laughs> How the Gemara talks. Why does it rain in the world? So the Gemara says, because Eretz Yisrael needs rain. Since Eretz Yisrael needs rain, so it rains in Ireland too. But if Eretz Yisrael wouldn't need rain, and that's what it says, that, Lo Eretz Mitzrayim, you're going to bring into a place that's not like the land of Egypt where it never has to rain because they have the Nile River and they can irrigate everything. I'm bringing a place that's dry, that's desert, and you have to hope that it rains. And therefore, since the soil needs rain, so the whole world is blessed with rain. And that's why when we say Geshem and Tau, the prayers, so the prayers are for Eretz soil, even if we are living in different places, in different climes, and because of the fact that every place is blessed because of Eretz Yisrael. 
The Rosh was asked when he was the Roman Toledo in the uh, 1300s, the early 1300s, why in Spain, in Toledo, which has plenty of rain, uh, why should they say uh, Talamota or Mashibaruach Murdageshin? Because it really doesn't affect them. And the Rosh answered, we don't say it for Toledo, we don't say it for Spain. We say it for Eretz Yisrael. If Eretz Yisrael will be blessed, then every place will be blessed. And if Eretz Yisrael is, God forbid, not blessed, so then the things aren't blessed in other places either. That is how Chazal saw Eretz Yisrael. They saw it as the focus of all blessings. The country itself. And one of the signs that the rabbi said of the impending redemption of the land of, of the Jewish people, rather, is when the land of Israel begins to produce. We see uh, the fruit market full of every imaginable type of fruit and vegetable. It's something which was unheard of even uh, 30 years ago, 25 years ago in the country. And today we take it for granted. You know, and we're disappointed, you know, that uh, blueberries are out of season. But uh, Chazal saw in every piece of fruit and every vegetable that grew in the land of Israel, they saw holiness. Because that is the idea of mitzvahs atulios vorets, of the mitzvahs that are dependent upon growing in Eretz Yisrael. Rabbi say, why did Moshe make such a fuss that he wants to go to Eretz Yisrael? And I prayed to God, the Lord says, 900 times, and until God says, you know, send the Nutnik away, stop. I don't want to hear anymore. Don't talk about it anymore. So the Chazal says, so what did Moshe want? What is Moshe missing? Moshe is going all my ball. Moshe has the Torah. Moshe is uh, intimate, so to speak, with God Himself. So what does he need? So the Gemara says he needs the mitzvahs of Leah's words. He needs to eat an apple that doesn't have orla, kilayim, that has meiser, that has truma. That's what he needs. So we take it for granted, right? By us, an apple is an apple is an apple. But Jews always saw in it more than the apple. They always saw in it, it's a holiness because it's sanctified. It's sanctified with so many mitzvahs. And Chazal even goes so far as to say that all the mitzvahs that are performed outside the land of Israel, Tfilm, Kriyashma, Tfilah, all of the mitzvahs that Jews do the world over are only to keep in training for doing mitzvahs in Eretz Yisrael. And that the real mitzvahs are only in Eretz Yisrael. So it gives us a different sense of being here. It certainly... Uh, uh, I always have that feeling, at least, on the rare times that I eat a fruit, that, uh, you know, look at me, right? Generally, I always have the feeling, you know, Moshe couldn't do it, and I'm doing it. 
Moshe wasn't here and I'm here. I take it for granted. But the rabbi saw in it this great holiness, this great uniqueness, this great special feeling. Because it's Eretz Asher Eini Hashem Elokech Abba Vereshi Shona Ve'arachri Shona It's the Holy Land It's a place where God is, so to speak And because of that, the rabbis called it Palter in Shomelech, the King's Palace So there are duties upon us Because if you're in the King's Palace, you're supposed to behave yourself But however that may be It's still the King's Palace and therefore, that is the feeling, the emotion that goes with it. Now, Chazal saw in uh, Yishu of Eretz Yisrael uh, overriding values. They said, that, for instance, Yishu of Eretz Yisrael in certain instances overrides the Shabbat. The Gemara says, Mutter, it is permissible, Lokachas botim Eretz Yisrael minakum. On Shabbat to buy property in Eretz Israel from the hands of non-Jews. Because of the fact that the issue of Eretz Israel takes precedence. And uh, the Gemara says that Eretz Israel, Domel Lemilo, the mitzvah of Eretz Israel is equal to the mitzvah of circumcision. Ma Mila Shabbos. Just like the mitzvah of Mila is Docher Shabbos, and if the child is born on Shabbat and his Brit is on Shabbat, that was usually the origin of the name Shabsai. There was a child that was born on Shabbat and circumcised on Shabbat, so he was a Shabbos Jew. So too, Eretz Yisrael, Docher Shabbat. Eretz Yisrael also, certain instances, is also Docher de Shabbat. And therefore we have this great quality simply because of the holiness of Eretz Yisrael. Now the Gemara says even more radical statements. Uh, the Gemara wouldn't say it. I certainly wouldn't say it. Certainly not on television. But it's a Gemara. The Gemara says, Nochrim. <laughs> A Jew should live in Eretz Israel, even in a city, in a community that is mainly non-Jewish. Rather than living in Chutzloretz, in a city that is very Jewish. Anybody who lives in Eretz Israel sooner or later comes to the realization that there's a God in the world. B'chol ador b'chutz l'oretz And in chutz l'oretz after a while God takes a very secondary position. Now that's a very strong statement. If we would apply it today, we could say it without mentioning names of communities, but we all know, you know, that there are holy Jewish communities throughout the world. And here in Israel, there are places where, you know, it's not so hot. It's not so great. But the Gemara says there, it's is such an overriding value 
leaving an Eretz Yisrael is such an overriding value that it overrides that too. The Gemara says, Kol Ador Eretz Yisrael, Shorui below Ovam. Someone who lives in Eretz Yisrael is as though he lives without sin. So the Mephoshim explained, because the Yisurim of Eretz Yisrael are of such a nature that our sins are forgiven daily. And if you think about it, every day, every day something happens, right? You listen to the news, I don't know anybody that walks away from the news happy. So that instant of pain, when you hear the stupidities that go on, and the problems, right? So that instant is a kapora already. Because one of the uh, facets of Eretz Israel is that it's mechaper. And since it's niknis biyasurim, so therefore the sins are more easily erased. So there was always an eternal covenant between the Jewish people and the land of Israel, wherever the Jews were. The Jews always, they named their uh, streets after uh, the land of Israel. You know, I went, went uh, once uh, through Provence, every little town where Jews once were, and Lunel and Montpellier and uh, Arles and uh, Orange, and uh, Posquares, all the towns where the Chachme Provence lived. So there are no Jews left. All the Jews are gone. There isn't even a Jewish cemetery left. It's nothing. But in all of them, in the medieval part of the town that is preserved, there is a street called Rue Jerusalem. And Jews always remembered whoever they went. And Nachman of Breslov said, Every step that I take is towards Jerusalem. That was the covenant that Jews had. And even though uh, for centuries on end they had no chance to physically achieve it, but mentally in their minds they achieved it. Spiritually they achieved it. They were home. Therefore, even in the darkest places of Eastern Europe and in the mellows of Morocco, uh, Jews were attached there to Israel. And they were attached there to Israel because of the fact that it was a value. It was not a matter of Jewish nationalism. It was a matter of a spiritual value that held a place in their heart and soul. And uh, that's part of the problem. Uh, what happened uh, over a hundred years ago with the coming of secular Zionism is that uh, secular Zionism uh, replaced the value of Eretz Israel and it replaced it with the value of Jewish nationalism of being a nation to a certain extent we're going to be like everybody else we have our own country and our own flag, and our own army, and our own anthem, and we'll be like everyone else. And it's no surprise, therefore, that in 1904, when England offered Uganda to Herzl, he took it. Because he wasn't 
sold on Eretz Yisrael. He was sold on the fact that the Jews need a national home. They need a place of refuge. And that national home, a place of refuge, could be Uganda, right? It's just too bad that America didn't offer San Diego. And the Zionist Congress approved the Ugandan plan. Fell apart because evidently God was not interested in Uganda. And it's interesting that the Eastern European Jews, led by Weizmann, uh, were the main opponents of this idea because uh, the Eastern European Jew, even when he was secularized, still was attached to Eretz Israel. Even if he was a national, a believer in Jewish nationalism, even if he was a believer in, uh, and in socialism and in all of the other things that rode the horse of Zionism, labor Zionism, all of the things, all of the isms, but they still were attached to Eretz Israel. And we'll uh, conclude Rabbi Wine's segment uh, with that. Thank you all for listening this morning. Uh, programming continues. Great program continues all day long right here on the network. Nachum will be back tomorrow morning, continuing the nine days format. And uh, I want to wish everyone a good week and uh, hope you have an easy fast. And, of course, a great Shabbos following. Uh, and we expect and hope to see you next week right here on JM Sunday, right here on the Nachum Siegel Network. been listening to Matis Weingast and JM Sunday on NahumSiegel.com right here at the NahumSiegel Network.